Let's pray. God, this morning before we ask for some specific things regarding how we spend the next few minutes, we want to pray for another church in our community. I want to pray for Highland Terrace Baptist Church. And I want to pray for Chet and Terry Haney. Lord, I want to pray first for Chet's worship, that uh, Chet is being fueled in his study, uh, that he is, um, that his ministry to Highland Terrace is fueled by worship uh, and not by job and not by duty, but by joy and wonder and marvel. Lord, I pray that that finds purchase at home first, that Terry is on the receiving end of that, that they are putting the gospel on display in their marriage, that they are growing in their marriage, that they are growing as a family um, in worship and wonder, and that that's spilling over onto a church that they're going to pastor and lead. Lord, we pray for Highland Terrace Baptist Church, that they are being equipped, even this morning and weekly, to be salty, bright, and aromatic, as we would hope the same for ourselves and for other Christian churches in our community. Lord, in regards to Highland Terrace Baptist Church, we pray for a spirit of uh, hope, a spirit of uh, encouragement between these churches in our community, between us and Highland Terrace, that we want great things there because your name is attached to, to that place. And your fame and your glory are what we want through the ministry of Highland Terrace Baptist Church. Lord, whatever way that we can come alongside this church, cheer for this church, make much of you in the ministry of the church, we pray that we'll be faithful to do that. We pray that they'll not have seating capacity for all that you will do there and all that you are doing. Thankful that we share a Savior, that we share a Holy Spirit, that we share an empty tomb, we share a baptism with Highland Terrace Baptist Church. Lord, in regards to how we spend the next few minutes, I pray for an attentiveness that's beyond what we're capable of, and I pray for a clarity that's well beyond what I'm capable of. I pray that the Holy Spirit will speak to hearts and minds. I pray for those who may be hearing things, um, hopefully nothing's assumed this morning, but hearing something that may be assumed, maybe hearing things for the first time, hearing a, a detail about Israel or um, a detail of the story in our Bibles that's unfamiliar. We pray that the Holy Spirit, Lord, will still speak. And the Holy Spirit will illuminate and open the eyes of our hearts to see the massive truths of the gospel that we walk in. I pray that we'll be stirred up as a people this morning. That the lens in, what, in which we view the world will be changed and be brought into focus with a stronger, more potent faith. We turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It seems like there's some feedback, and y'all may have tuned that out. It may have just been initial. If you're here for the first time, I want to welcome you. Um, I don't know what you're expecting. Uh, I don't know if somebody, there's no way of knowing if somebody, for me up here, if somebody invited you, if you kind of had a heads up. But you're going to need your Bible this morning. I, I you always need your Bible um, here, um, but you're really going to need it this morning. And um, I want you to know that you're welcome. I want you to know that uh, we want you to feel welcome. Hopefully, we are going to do a good job this morning of meeting you. If, if somebody 
doesn't know you, hopefully we can make a connection to you by the time you leave. If not, then hopefully you'll give us another chance at that. Sometimes we get caught up with each other and catching up that we could miss somebody, and we don't want to do that. We're glad you're here. And um, let me prepare you two visitors and prepare our body. I told Christy this morning, this is a He-Man woman-hater sermon. If you're familiar with the Little Rascals, you know the Little Rascals had a club, the He-Man woman-haters club. Uh, when I was in the Marine Corps years ago, we found that Marines would come out of infantry officer, or not infantry officers training, infantry basic training into our unit, and um, they would almost without fail, within months, begin to grow more and more disheveled. Their rooms would would get messy. Their gear, they wouldn't take care of their gear. They might put on some weight. You know, they come out lean and mean out of their initial training, and then only months later, we're seeing a, a sort of a change there, a degradation in, in their commitment, in their resolve. And what we realized, it was not because of over-challenging, it was because of under-challenging. So we started a little club called the He-Man Woman Haters Club, where every morning we'd go out and run a different peak on Camp Pendleton. And uh, it had nothing to do with hating women. I mean, I think I'm pretty much sure that we all loved women. And, uh, but it was just about doing something that's challenging. And this is one of those sermons this morning. I'm just going to tell you right now, this is a beef eaters message right here. And I, I hope that you had a chance this week to read Hebrews 9 because that familiarity is going to be helpful for you. Uh, if you didn't, then no worries. We're, we prayed that the Holy Spirit would speak, uh, whatever your preparation may be this morning. So I trust that he's going to do that. And this time that we spend together is not going to return void. Turn to Hebrews 9. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to cover this entire chapter this morning. I'm going to orient you to the map as you turn there. We're smack dab in the middle of an encouragement to a suffering and fragile church. The Hebrews preacher is encouraging them with what I just said, what what we're calling meat, real meat. In fact, he goes out of his way to say, this is big people food. He scolds them in the middle of this argument saying, you really need milk because you've sort of reverted But we're going to trust that we're not where the Hebrews church is this morning. And we're going to trust that we can hear this meat. And it's interesting that despite the scolding, he continues on with the argument and continues on feeding them meat. We're right in the middle of this meaty message from the Hebrews preacher to the Hebrews church about the wonderful realities about Christianity. It seems this church, either largely or collectively, is considering going back to Judaism. It's a Jewish Christian church. That's why it's called the letter to the Hebrews, likely in Rome. There's a whole section uh, in Rome there that, that they believe that the early Jewish folks lived. And likely this church was in that area. And they are largely or collectively considering bailing on Christianity and going back to Judaism. Now what's really cool about the letter to the church in, 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 or the Hebrews letter What's cool about climbing into this book is it's not a comparison here of worldliness and faith. It's not like a letter to the Corinthians that is distinguishing between outright paganism, for example, and Christianity. What's cool about this book is that it's comparing God's good with God's best and final. I thought about it like this. Whenever you buy a new rifle... Those of you guys, those of you that are into a rifle, oftentimes you're going to get a scope for it. You, know, you, can, you don't have to get a scope for a rifle, but you might. If you're a deer hunter, you need a big scope. You, know. you buy the scope at the gun shop, and they put this thing in the end of the rifle called a bore sighter or bore sight. 
And this thing just essentially gets you to the point where you can hit paper at the range. It's not a micro adjustment. It's sort of a macro adjustment to where you at least have some general idea where your round is going. It's a big picture macro adjustment to where you can hit paper. But then later you go to the range and you dial that joker in to where it's right on the, right on the money, right there in the bullseye, through adjusting the scope and all that, and through firing rounds down range. In some ways, a book that's just distinguishing between paganism or worldliness and Christianity is sort of a bore sight. But the range sighting, where you really get in for some fine micro-adjustments, that's the book of Hebrews. It's some fine-tuning on your faith and some fine-tuning on your understanding of the gospel where you can bring that joker right in, right on the money. That's what this book does. It's a wonderful, wonderful book, but it's challenging. It's challenging. As you'll know, if you've been walking with us the last few months, we've had some challenging sermons, as you'll find out this one will be as well. In this book, the book of Hebrews, the Hebrews preacher is comparing God's penultimate, which is just under his ultimate, with his ultimate. He is contrasting Judaism, or old covenant faith, with new covenant in Christianity. It's a faith-refining book. This chapter in particular, chapter 9, is a chapter full of betters. The better is only used once in that chapter. Now, if you got the email that I sent out earlier this week, I asked you to do an assignment this week as you read through chapter 9 to look for the betters. Now, if you only look for that word, you only come, come here with one this morning. But if you were looking for the point that he's making about contrasting and comparing some things, likely you walked away with more than one, hopefully a good bit more than one. I've got six this morning, and those six are going to be our guide for how we spend the morning. But so far in the book of Hebrews, the Hebrews preacher has made an argument for some things that are better. First of all, that the high priest is better in these previous chapters. Our high priest in Christ is far better than any human high priest ever was for the nation of Israel. In him we have a better hope. He comes from a better order the order of Melchizedek. And he is the guarantor of a better covenant and the mediator of a better covenant. Now today we're going to add some betters. Four of them I think are going to be pretty clearly presented. And the fifth and sixth better are resultant from the first four. Okay, Or even the ones even beyond that, the other betters. Four betters we're going to look at today that come right from the passage, and then two that are sort of, we have to work a little harder at, but that are really, really, really sweet. So let's climb in together. Here's the guide for how we're going to unpack this chapter. I've done my best to break down this sermon into the betters. I asked you to look for them earlier this week, so hopefully you've done your homework. But here's how we're going to spend the next few minutes. In four chunks in this chapter, and then two more resulting. The four chunks we're going to grab are chapter 9, verses 1 through 12a. You know we're, we've got some work to do when we start talking, A and B. 1 through 12a, that's the first chunk. The second chunk is from 12a. <laughs> the third chunk is verses 12 through 14. And the last chunk, or the fourth chunk, is going to be verses 15 through the end of the chapter. 
Okay? I'm going to say that again because some of you note takers, you're like, man, I totally didn't get that and I'm lost from here on. I encourage you to take notes. This is one of those sermons. If you don't ever do that, this would be a good time to start. Verses 1 through 12a is the first chunk. Second chunk is 12a. Third chunk is verses 12 through 14. Fourth chunk is verse 15 through the end of the chapter. Okay, and we're going to unpack four betters in those four chunks, and then we're going to look at two really, really awesome betters that are resulting from those four. I'm going to sit right here for the first four. Brad Cardwell and I joke with each other about how we use this stool. Brad gives it about three minutes, and then he's up, and he just can't stay seated. I'm going to plant myself here for the four, but then I'm going to stand up for the last two because I need to. Because you'll understand why, because they're pretty awesome. This is more, maybe this first section will be a little more teaching, so we'll sit down. Now, starting in chapter 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. In the previous verses, before chapter 9 begins, he's been introducing the notion of a new covenant and a new mediator. So now he starts a contrast of old and new covenant, or he continues, because he's already contrasted it some continues a contrast of old and new covenant. Now, when I say old covenant, what I want you to think is Mosaic covenant, not Abrahamic covenant. When I say old covenant, in what he's using here, he's speaking of the Mosaic covenant, the sacrificial system, or what we might read elsewhere is called the law. Okay, those are interchangeably connected to where we are today. Okay, there's some nuance there, but for the most part, we're going to call those Mosaic law, Law, sacrificial system, first covenant is what he's talking about here in these next few verses. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared. Now, that tent is called the tabernacle. You've probably read, if you've read your Old Testament, you've read about the tabernacle before. It's like their moving mobile worship center. Later became the temple, Solomon's temple, and then later Herod's temple. Now, he's going to use the language of the tent throughout here. He's not going to start talking temple later. He's going to call all of it the tent. Okay? Connect to that thought. For a tent was prepared, the first section of which, or or the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. Put up one of my high speed pictures at first. I, I prepared for you, like professionally prepared for you, some wonderful illustrations for you this morning. Well in advance, I planned. I actually drew them on the back of my notes and, and texted them to these guys this morning. This, is a, this, this spatial arrangement is important. It's going to come into play at the end of the morning. That's why I want you to see this, and that's why I'm okay with a lame picture. A lame picture is going to be enough for you this morning. As you see here on the left, the first section is the holy place. The second section I'm about to read about is the most holy place. Now, the geometry or the the not geometry, the, uh, the, the layout there, the dimensions is the word I'm looking for, are not on there. But the, the most holy place would be about 15 by 15 feet. Small, little space. Okay, this is kind of the layout of the first section and the section. Leave that up there for a couple minutes. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Okay, this spatial arrangement is going to be important, so just kind of maybe even jot it down. Having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. 
Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now we don't know if he can't speak in detail because the sort of the details have been lost, the, the precise details, or if he just doesn't have room or space, likely the latter. He just wouldn't want to get bogged down in the details. So he doesn't continue speaking about it. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section. Put that next slide up there for me. Thank you. See, you see how that phased out? That's pretty high speed. That's high tech right there. Because it looked like I, they, they weren't there, and now they're there. It's pretty cool. The first section, the holy place, regularly. Okay, that's a key word. The priests, the regular old priests, are regularly going into the first section, or the holy place, all the time, performing their ritual duties. But into the second place, the second section, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Now you see there, regularly in the holy place, the first section, once a year in the most holy place, in the second section. First section is just regular old priestly duty. Second section is once a year and only by the high priest, making an offering for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. He's speaking there of the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16. Wonderful chapter that we'll read at the end of our morning. Okay. Now verse 8. Verse 8 is just a head scratcher. I mean, I have right after it in parentheses, huh, with question marks, but... We're not going to be that clueless. I made that hunt early on in my studies. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates, by this speaking of the layout of the tabernacle and the details he just went into, by this, the Holy Spirit is indicating something, that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. Now, if any of you just make a beeline to understanding that, you are pretty amazing. it's a crazy verse, and it's one that I've been wrestling with for weeks now. I'm going to read it again, and we're going to get into an explanation in a moment. By this, by all these details of the tabernacle, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. Okay, you can kill that picture now. We'll come back to that at the end of the morning, and you'll see why that's important and why... We invested some time there. Now, continue on in verse 9, the most tragic passage in this whole chapter. According to this arrangement, the tabernacle and all the details and the, the dimensions and all the inner and outer section, the first section, the second section, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. This is a tragic statement. You may not realize how tragic it is right now, but when we see the remedy... And the beauty of what we have in Christ, you'll understand how tragic that statement is. For 1,500 years, there was no remedy for the conscience. They could do all these sacrifices and in some ways cleanse the outer person and deal with outer defilement. But they could not deal with the inner problem, the problem of the conscience. These things, these gifts and sacrifices are offered and they cannot perfect the conscience or the worshiper, but they deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. The time of reformation is a sweet phrase. 
Because the time of Reformation comes in the next verse. But when Christ appeared at the time of Reformation, that word Reformation also means correction. At the time of correction, the time of Reformation, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered. Now, the first better is the, we're going to spend most time on the first better. The next three betters we're going to fly through. Okay, so don't, don't get discouraged if you're like, man, that's a significant, we got a significant investment in the first better. We got, really do have some work to do. Here's the first better. A better tent and a better, better tabernacle we have in Christ. Think about how much airtime is invested in this chapter in the details of the tabernacle and the tent. It's because it's representative of 1,500 years of the sacrificial system. It's representative of a large section of our Bible. A massive amount of information is dedicated to the inner workings and the details of the sacrificial system, the Old Covenant, and the Mosaic Law. These details would have been very familiar to a Jew. The Jewish church likely wouldn't have even needed the explanation that we're going into this morning and could have made a beeline to the layout and to the point that he's making that we're going to have to work really hard at getting this morning because they were Jewish by background. Any Jew would have known what the layout meant. Any Jew likely would have known that Moses on Sinai was given a glimpse into the heavens and it's from the heavens that he made the pattern. For the tabernacle. He was given a glimpse into the throne room in Exodus 25. And it's there in first-hand view, first-hand witness that he was able to put together the details for the pattern for the tabernacle and the tent. And each of the details are ripe with meaning and importance. But this Hebrews preacher is not getting into the details. Remember, he said, we don't have time for that or we don't have room for that. In all of this, he's communicating one thing. He's communicating what the Holy Spirit is communicating in verse 8. And we're going to look at that in a minute. But in big picture, verses 1 through 10, in this, all this airtime that he gives all these details, the, what he's developing there is the ultimate insufficiency of the old covenant and the sacrificial system. It cannot perfect The conscience, it does a lot of other things that are really pretty cool. But it does not perfect the inner conscience. Now, verse 8. I told you we're going to deal with it, so let's deal with it. Verse 8, a difficult passage. I'm going to read it again, and then I'm going to explain it. By this, all these details of the, of the tabernacle and the sacrificial system that he communicates here, these inner, the, the, the spatial arrangement of the inner and the outer... The Holy Spirit is indicating something in that, all those details. For somebody who's paying attention and somebody who wants to do the work, we can figure out what in the world is the Holy Spirit getting at. He indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. This is an intentional 1,500-year investment and design by the Holy Spirit, ultimately just to show... How temporary it all was. Ultimately, just to show how temporary and how shadowy it all was. 
all these fixtures, all the furniture, all the tent, all the tabernacle, it was mobile. It was temporary. The still standing outer section is symbolic of an age that is temporary, that will come to an end with the destruction of the temple. We don't know how many years later this actually happens at this point. But there is some sense that it hadn't happened yet. Because they're speaking of this age where that outer section is still standing in Herod's temple over in Jerusalem. Now, this age is going to come to an end ultimately in the destruction of the temple. But here's the beautiful thing for those who are in Christ. It already has come to an end. That outer section has already been destroyed. Now, we'll come back to that, more on that later. But I want to talk more about the temporary nature of the tabernacle. The tabernacle and all of its furnishings proclaimed its own temporary character. Now, you might think about Solomon's temple and think about all that marble and all that granite and all those gold and fixtures and things. That doesn't sound very temporary. Well, tell the Chaldeans that. Not the, yeah, the Chaldeans in 587 B.C. who raised it, leveled it. You might be thinking about Herod's temple. You might, with the disciples, marvel about how grandiose and amazing the Herod's temple was. Man, look at that, Jesus. Isn't that something? Not realizing that in 72, I think, A.D., is that right, Luke? 72? 71? It was leveled by Rome. Man, the message here is that all of this is temporary. Here's something I found that's really sad about Herod's temple as I studied this more. I found that the Ark of the Covenant was lost after the destruction of Solomon's temple by the Chaldeans in 587 B.C. The Ark of the Covenant, the main fixture in the Holy of Holies, was lost. And it was not replaced because it couldn't be. The things that were in it could not be replaced. Pompey apparently insisted that he wanted to see the inner section, that second section that we had up here on the wall. He wanted to see the Holy of Holies, expecting there must be something pretty spectacular in there. And in 63 B.C., he pushed his way into the Holy of Holies, only to find that it's empty. Empty. When we really climb into the details of the tabernacle and the temple, however amazing it must have been, however much gold and filigree and all that other stuff that's everywhere... We have to really consider how pitiful the whole thing was, especially here, 63 years or so before Christ shows up, and the holiest uh, holiest place is empty. There's not even anything really of substance going on in there because there's nothing in there. Man, let's take in the temporary nature of this tabernacle just for a minute because it's going to be in stark contrast to the tent. That Christ enters in verse 11. Let me show you three things about the tabernacle that I want you to get. Three important things about the tabernacle, in addition to it being very temporary. Except on the Day of Atonement, in Leviticus 16, the way to the inner holiest of holies was barred even for the high priest. Aaron couldn't just prance up in there anytime he wants to go be in the presence of God. It was once a year by only one person out of all the nation of Israel. 
I started thinking about this. You know, there's some numbers, some figures that we have about the general number of men that were counted in the nation of Israel. 600,000 or so, generally. I want you to think about this for a minute. One six hundred thousandth of the people got to go into the holiest place one three hundred sixty-fifth of the time. Let that hit you for a minute. Some of you engineers could really do some cool stuff with percentages and stuff there. I tried to convert it to percentages, and I couldn't because there were like too many zeros. I mean, I really did. I was doing cross-multiplication and everything, trying to remember how to do a percentage. It's been a long time. And it, I, it was unintelligible. It was negligible. One six hundred thousandth of the people of the nation of Israel, and that's a very conservative estimate because that's just the men, got to enter this most holy place in this tabernacle one 365th of the time, one day out of the year. That's the first thing. The second thing, when the high priest could actually go in, that joker better not be empty-handed. He better not be empty-handed, but he better have some blood of some innocent critters or he would die. Man. And the third thing, the blood he carried in, the ultimate point of this first uh, few verses, first 10 verses, the tragic reminder in verse 9, the, the, the blood he carried in was not finally efficacious. It was not finally effective. It's that efficacious word that's, that's often used in regards to the work of the blood, the effectiveness of the blood. The blood of bulls and goats was not finally efficacious. Fresh blood had to be shed and fresh entry had to be made into the Holy of Holies year by year by year by year. Get that in stark contrast and now we go to verse 11 and enjoy what verse 11 tells us. But when Christ appeared at the time of reformation, the time of correction, as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered. Christ entered a greater and more perfect tent. Not a temporary one, not a pattern, not a copy, not a shadow, but the real deal. And he entered into what Moses was able to peek into on the top of Sinai in Exodus 25. He entered and did the work of the high priest in the true tent. So first, it's a better tent. Now, the second better, in verse 12a. He entered once for all into the holy places. He entered once for all, unlike the priests who entered daily into the holy place and the high priest who enters yearly into the holy of holies and only for a few minutes. His was a better entrance because it was a final entrance. Final. Once and for all entrance. In contrast with the priests who were hustling about regularly into the holy place in the first section. Hustling about dealing with showbread. we got to get the showbread out today. we got to deal with the incense. we got to deal with the blood, tending to the candles, and all, the, all that went into the daily routine in and out of the holy place. There's no hustling going on right here. There's one entrance. And it's a better entrance because it's a final entrance. And it's even unlike the high priest who enters... 
once a year. On that occasion when he enters once a year, he enters twice. The first time to deal with the sin of his own sin and his family's sin. The first sacrifice that he makes is for himself and for the sins of his family. The second time he enters is to deal with the sins of the people with an offering for them. Christ, though, entered once and for all time. Our high priest was better because it was final. Now continue on in verse 12 to get our third better. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The third better is better blood. Man, it's a better tent. It's a better entrance. And man, it's with better blood. He entered not with the blood of old covenant sacrifices like all the priests had for 1,500 years with that of bulls and goats and other innocents, but by means of his own blood. Now, what I don't want you to envision is the high court of heaven, the throne room, with Jesus walking in there with a cup or whatever of his own blood. He didn't have to bring blood into, the own, into his own throne room. The blood that was sprinkled in this case was sprinkled exactly where it needed to be sprinkled at Calvary. And it was sprinkled only once. There was no purifying work of blood in the throne room. He entered by means of his own blood. And this, the thing I enjoy about this is one of four or five how much more arguments in the book of Hebrews. Here's one of them. You don't even need to turn. Just listen. Hebrews 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The Hebrews preacher uses this argument design four or five times in the book, and he uses them very effectively. How much more? If this message came by angels and this happened to them when they disregarded it, how much worse off are you going to be when this message that came by Christ if we disregard it? That how much more argument is used throughout this book. In chapter 10, verse 28 and 29. In chapter 12, verse 9. In chapter 12, verse 25. Throughout, and in this case, if the blood of bulls and goats purifies the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ purify the conscience? The third thing was better blood. We're going to come back and spend some more time on that in a minute. Now for the fourth thing in the largest chunk of the script of, of this passage that we're engaging. And I will, I'll tell you too, this is probably the most difficult to make sense of, this last section. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it because we don't need to. We're going to spend most of our time on the fourth and fifth better, or the fifth and sixth better. But this is the fourth better from this last section, uh, verses 15 through the end. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. 
For a will takes effect only at death, since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Pay real attention to these next three verses. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, here regularly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, two little points to bring out of this passage, this big section. that's going to get our, our fourth better The fourth better is a better sacrifice. It's a better better sacrifice because there is a better or there is a death that has occurred. I love the imagery he uses here is the imagery of a will at a death. If you go to Brent Money or some other lawyer and you develop a will and testament, a last will and testament, it doesn't go into effect until your death. The point that he's making in this passage is that at Christ's death, at that sacrifice, the will went into effect. And the inheritance is guaranteed. The inheritance is assured at that point. He's reading the will. And telling the the Hebrews church, as we're enjoying this morning, we're enjoying the details of the inheritance and the will because the final sacrifice has been made and the death has happened. Verses 24 through 27, I asked you to pay real close attention to, or 24 through 26, because they captured all of these four betters and nicely connected them, condensed them in a sacrifice. For Christ has entered... Remember, once and for all, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And it wasn't with his own or with other critters, innocent's blood, but by means of his own blood, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The fourth thing is that he is a better sacrifice because it was a sacrifice of himself in a better tent with a better and final entrance and by means of better blood. Now, if you all paid attention this long, you've done good because I think the last two things are where we're really going to get connected to this passage. The real sense, the real 
enjoyable. Those are enjoyable in and of themselves. But the time of reformation has come, and these betters, the better tent, the better entrance, the better blood, a better sacrifice, work together for a couple more really great betters. The first of those is a better conscience. You remember the tragedy of verse 9? I told you, I said, man, really pay attention to those words in verse 9. According to this, all that went on in the tabernacle and the temple, all that went on in the tent, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. The conscience. You may not really understand what that is, so I want to spend just a moment developing that. This word in the Greek didn't have a real strong presence in Greek literature. It was really brought into literature by Paul himself. Now, we don't think, I don't think, some people might, I don't think Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. But Paul uses this term over and over and over again throughout his letters, the word conscience. He brought it into its deeper meaning of moral conscience. It was taken up by later New Testament writers like Peter. I'm going to share a passage with you in a moment. But Philo, listen to how, what Philo says about this word, the conscience. He says, it's a faculty which examines and passes judgment on conduct, established in the soul like a judge. Any of you have one of those? Any of you have that inner judge? Any of you have that inner faculty that is constantly analyzing and passing judgment on how you're moving and what you're doing. I hope you have one of those. Now, I told Christy, we were talking about this whole conscience thing. We're driving, spent a lot of time in the car, and I don't know why some people have a very defined and developed conscience, a a very defined and developed sense of right and wrong, and then some people don't. But most people, I think, have a sense of that inner judge. And as you hear that description by Philo, you're like, yeah, I've got one of those jokers. And he's always there. And here's the cool thing about the gospel. Here's the cool thing about what this high priest does in this perfect tent. He connects faith to something going on in the conscience. Paul does it too. I want to share a few passages with you in Paul. Turn to 1 Timothy 5. It's worth looking at what Paul says about the conscience before we really consider what's taking place here in Hebrews. 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to look at four or five passages here in First and Second Timothy briefly. I want you to see what the neighbors are to a clean conscience. I want you to see what goes with a clean conscience. Chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, verse 5. The aim of, aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You're going to see faith and conscience going together a lot here in these next few verses. Here you see also a good heart connected to a good con- or a pure heart connected to a good conscience and a sincere faith. Look at the next one in verse 19. 
I'll read verse 18 just for the sake of context. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. This this that they've rejected is faith and a good conscience. The thing that was cleansed and purified and perfected through this better sacrifice of Christ. That's what they're rejecting. Look at the next one in 1 Timothy 3, 9. Deacons. Deacons must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. There it is again. Faith and conscience. Look over at chapter at 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 3. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. There's something going on in Paul, and these, his letters are saturated with this thought about conscience. Something is happening to happen to our conscience in the work of Christ and what he's done. And it has been purified, and it has been cleansed. We, through his work, have a better conscience. Contrast that with those who walk away from the faith. 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. That might sound like, ooh, man, somebody's into some weird stuff if they're teaching what demons teach. But listen to what what is said next. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God's created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. In this context, this seared conscience, that word seared had to do with slaves who were branded. What he's he's implying here that those who bail on faith and then say, hey, you better not get married. I'm going to add some some hoops to being a Christian. You better not get married and you better not eat these foods. You better not drink this drink. You better not do this over here. You better not do that over there. They are really enslaving themselves and enslaving those who follow them. And their consciences are seared in contrast to one who holds to faith with a clear conscience. The word I hope is familiar to you because some of you have been baptized with these words spoken over the baptismal pool set up right here or set up over there. I've shared this over my children's baptisms from 1 Peter chapter 3. Baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That same word that's used over here in Hebrews. See, the problem is a clean conscience is a... Or a Unclean conscience is a colossal barrier to our free access to God. A colossal barrier. But when the conscience is purified, then that one is freed to approach God without reservation and offer Him acceptable worship and service. Turn to Mark chapter 7. Man, this is beautiful. This is just... mm. 
this next little passage and these next thoughts are honestly for me in thinking through this sermon and praying through this sermon they're the point this this is the point that I couldn't wait to get to Mark chapter 7 It's not contact contact with dead stuff are bugs are weird critters that really defiled somebody. Now, in the Old Covenant, you, you may have read some of those passages in Leviticus, for example, of what defiled someone. I want you to realize they were defiled outwardly in those things. And that was remedied outwardly in the sacrificial system when there was some sacrifice made. We read that earlier. They dealt with washings and cleansings and they didn't fix that inner problem. And listen to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7. I'm going to start in verse 14. He called the people to him again and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Look down a few verses to verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these come from within, and they defile a person. When you read that passage, you realize that the Pharisees, you connect to some other passages, like the Pharisees who were whitewashed tombs, who looked shiny and pretty on the outside, but were dead inside. See, there's a problem going on inside man that is connected here. All these things come out of the inside, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. But the work that the high priest did through the better tent, with the better blood, with a better sacrifice and the better entrance, it remedies that problem. Something's got to happen to the inner environment before the outside is truly changed. The conscience has to be perfected and purified. That is a requirement for communion with a holy God. The conscience must be freed and purified and cleansed from dead works. And dead works could be pagan practices. It could also be Judaism after Christ came. Practicing, continuing to practice the sacrificial system after Christ came. That's dead works. You're trying to somehow earn favor with God apart from faith. And it's dead works. And our conscience has been cleansed from that. Those are the attitudes and practices that belong to death. We've been liberated from that. Christ's work frees us from our bondage to sin in these works so that a follower of Christ could actually do some of the same works but not do them sinfully. Could actually do them in a way that is actually honoring God for the right reasons. In faith. And in fact, through the work of that high priest, he's been freed to do so. Man, I don't know how many times from this pulpit, how many times over there in the old sanctuary, we considered our good standing with God because of Christ's work as we should, how he looks at us. Man, you better consider that. That's a massive reality of the gospel. But what's being communicated here is something that you should consider 
is that it's not just that God's now okay with you because of Christ, but you're okay with you because of Christ. Because your conscience has been cleaned. You're not branded and seared like somebody else who's trying to self-impose stupid hoops on themselves to please God. Man, what liberty! It's not just that God is okay with you of the gospel, but because of the gospel, you can be okay with you. Some of you need to be set free with that. I know some of the bondage that some of y'all have. Man, I have some of that too. Satan's constantly communicating those kind of things to us. But we need to know that through the work of this high priest, through that perfect tent, with that perfect blood, with that better blood and that better sacrifice, and that better entrance, that your inner judge and jury is satisfied. You can tell the inner judge and jury... Button it. Man, like Adam and Eve, we tend to hide in our guilt and shame. But the perfected conscience means that we don't walk in guilt and shame anymore because we've been purified to serve. Our conscience have been purified to serve. It's not just a rescue, but a redemption and a purification for a purpose. To serve the God who won you. Man, what freedom, what liberty, what good news. That's the fifth better, a better conscience. Here's the last better, a better salvation. Christ's entrance into the true tent by means of better blood means a better salvation. For us, for our inheritance is guaranteed. Turn back over to Hebrews. I want you to see this. Our inheritance is guaranteed. Chapter 8, verses 8 and 9, we looked at just a couple of weeks ago. He finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, that Mosaic covenant, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. This covenant's going to be different because in that covenant, they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. This covenant is different from that covenant. And look at 9, chapter 9. Verse 15, therefore, Christ is the mediator. He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised in eternal inheritance. The sixth better is that we have a better salvation because the inheritance is guaranteed. We have a better mediator than the old covenant had. The old covenant mediator was Moses. The new covenant mediator is a living mediator. I shared with you a few weeks ago a guarantor. It's a, a word we don't use very often. The guarantor for my first loan was my dad co-signing for me for a 1985 Toyota 4Runner. My dad is basically at the bank signing it saying, I guarantee this little joker right here is going to make these payments. But if he doesn't, I guarantee I'm going to make good on him. And man, as faithful as my dad was and is, 
he pales in comparison to the kind of guarantor that we have in this covenant. We have a guarantor that says, man, I'm going to see this thing through. God's people will receive the inheritance. Now, that's not, that's not saying that there's not room for a Hymenaeus and an Alexander to walk away from that. That's not to say there's not room for an apostate to leave the faith and walk away from that. The promise here is that God's people collectively will receive the inheritance this time, unlike God's people before. You remember the whole first generation died in the wilderness. It was 40 years moving around the wilderness. It was a 40-year graveyard. That's not what we're going to experience. We're going to receive the inheritance because we have a better salvation. Man. That is some seriously good news. And our salvation, look at verse 12, is eternal. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, not a yearly redemption, not a daily not a partial. His blood doesn't, doesn't just temporarily cleanse the outside. It purifies the innermost regions eternally. Period. Once and for all. There's no need for more atonement. There's no need for more bloodshed. We have a better salvation we're walking in. Now, put that second slide back up for me, please. Remember this second slide. Just going to take you back to the spatial arrangement. The first section, the holy place, regular stuff going on there. Second section, the most holy place, once a year sort of connection. By the, only by the high priest. One 365th of the time by one 600th, one 600,000th of the people. Okay? Kind of acquaint yourself with this again. The point he's making in this chapter about our salvation that we have in Christ is that that outer section has been removed for us. What I want you to see in this spatial arrangement, hit that next one for me, is the first section, that holy place, is the old covenant. That second section is the new covenant. Aaron and those high priests that came after Aaron were the only people of the nation of Israel that had even a wee taste of what we have a taste of every single day. Access to God in the Holy of Holies. Hit that next slide. The first section has now been removed. And the second section, for those who are in Christ, we have ample and complete and total, and daily, from the least to the greatest, access. Man, that's the good news of this message right there. That is the good news of this message. Listen to this passage from Mark chapter 16. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. A familiar passage. We know what's happening there. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That right there, I wrote, drew, scribbled, scrawled in the middle of that slide. Rip! Do you hear the veil tearing from top to bottom where now we, we, from the least to the greatest, from the least little bitty kid sitting next to you who trusts Christ as Savior and Lord to the greatest have 365 over 365 
access. Yes. There's no one six hundred thousandth of God people, God's people that have access to him now. It's all of God's people from the least to the greatest. Man, the good things that were to come that Abraham and the prophets pined for are now the good things that have come. <laughs> yes. If you don't enjoy the age that we're in and the access that we have, then you need to spend some time considering what God's people didn't have before Christ. You can take that slide down. Kill that. I can't remember how long it took to build that four-lane bridge over I-30. It seemed like it was 20 or 30 years. You know what I'm talking about? A four-lane bridge right there by Walmart. I don't know how long it actually took on the calendar, but it seemed like a long time. I don't remember my last trip across the bridge. I, it was last night. I was taking one of Daniel's friends home to his house. We moved across it and came back that way. Not a real noteworthy memory. I do at times, really though, as I'm crossing that bridge, actually have a conscious enjoyment of it. Do any of you? Like, man, this is nice. Just fly across that joker. The construction project was so bad and it took so long to cross that bridge. There were times that I needed to go to Staples that I would drive L3, you know, 1570, all the way around the other side of town just to get to Staples, to get to Walgreens. You could throw a rock from Walmart nearly to those. But I'd drive all the way around because it was such a beating getting across that bridge when it was under construction. Some of y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. I remember waiting in line with L3. When L3 was let out for lunch, eight kajillion employees from L3 are sitting in line there for a 20-minute lunch, and they're all scratching their head. How are we going to get lunch? I'm thinking the same thing. I actually had a scooter at that time. Yes. It was a manly scooter. And um, I remember sitting at the, those lights, that series of lights, and feeling like a french fry in the summer. Sitting there just cooking. Miserable. Trying to cross that bridge. Man, you could still eventually get, a thro- get across it, but it was such a beating. Do you realize that we cross over a bridge with great ease that was under construction for 1,500 years? That's paved with the blood of countless bulls and goats. That's paved with the work of countless priests serving regularly, serving once a year. And we can cross over that bridge with nary a thought about the work that went into getting us access that we have now. For those of us that lived here and had to cross that bridge, we remember it. We remember it. We would do well to remember those days because they help us appreciate these days. Amen? Man, let's pray and we'll have our supper together. God, what amazing access. What shocking access we have. 
We are thankful for a better high priest in whom we have a better hope. We're thankful for a better high priest that comes from a better order, who's a better guarantor and a better mediator of a better covenant. God, we are thankful for a better tent, a better entrance, a better blood, a better sacrifice, a better conscience, and a better salvation. Lord, I pray today that we will cross that bridge often and that when we do, we will marvel at the amazing access that we have to you because of what Christ has done. Together we enjoy him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's distribute the elements.